Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton, PhD, and I'm your host on Get Down to College Business. What advantages does an engineer bring to a higher ed leadership team? Where does the skill set of an industrial engineer help steer the shift? How would an engineer see things as systems that could benefit the processes and practices of higher ed? What are areas of improvement for higher ed operations? I've got Andre Logan joining me today, who's the Director of Strategic Initiatives in the Office of the Chancellor at University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's in higher ed now, but his background as an industrial engineer gives him a fresh perspective on how things are done in colleges. Welcome, Andre. Hi, Sarah. Good to see you, Andre. And you know, that's how I first got to know you. You were an engineer in the 2000s for Harley-Davidson, and we had a lot of mutual friends in common there, so we got to know each other then. Yeah, it was great. You know, that was... That was my buddy. That was my first job out of school as an industrial engineer. It was a lot of manufacturing and system processing that I was doing. Uh, I actually even transitioned from there into IT, which is when I came up to Milwaukee and met you. Yeah, but one of the things that from my time when I was, you know, sort of a background, I'll, I'll tell you, is that I, I didn't start off as an industrial engineer in school. You know, I wanted to do American studies because my interests looked at you know, I saw things which I thought were incredible from uh, in American studies. You pull all these different majors, if you will. You know, you got Western Civ and you got African-American studies and you got economics. And really interesting to me to pull all of those together. And then, you know, then I realized that I needed to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> that pesky, pesky little thing called a paying job. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really good in math and science when I was uh, in high school. And, uh, you know, to be fair, I did start off in industrial engineering uh, at my first university, but switched to American studies. And then once I realized, you know, I needed to think beyond, obviously, my, my college coursework and figure out what a professional job I wanted to do, I, I looked at uh, being a diplomat. And so I went to those old career books and 1970s career books in the university library and looked up, you know, diplomat and then and to see what degree I needed to get in order to get in, in order to be that. And uh, it turns out they kept saying it said engineer was one of the degrees listed. And so then I went, well, then, well, let me think of something else. And so I started looking at all these different careers. And every time I'd open up the book, what it listed was engineer, you know. So I realized at that point, that being an engineer allows you to do just about anything. You know, it's a great baseline to jump into just about any career that I wanted to do or that anybody wanted to do. So the crux of it is that, yes, of course, there's a lot of math and science that's involved, but we're problem solvers. You know, that's what we're taught to do is to solve problems, obviously, either system or process or mechanical problems or electrical problems. But then ultimately, those go into bigger systems. And so you have to think about all the factors that go into what product or process that you're building. So I never went into industrial engineering thinking that I was going to be an engineer when I got out. I went into it because I knew I'd be, a, be versatile to do just about anything afterwards. So. so that's a new tidbit. I had no idea you were going to be a diplomat, but I could see that. You do have a lot of 
diplomacy skills. So fast forward 20 some years, we won't say the number of years, fast forward (laughs) to now. Tell me what it's like for you to be in higher ed, because I don't think you predicted that either as part of your career trajectory. So what's kind of what's it like and what's surprised you? So I'd say it's one, it's refreshing because there's a lot of good people. And I think this is pretty across the board for most universities that there's a lot of people that are doing it for the right reasons. They're there for the students and or advancing research. And so I think what surprised me the most coming from the for-profit world to higher education is the idea of shared governance. You know, that was a big surprise, getting input from all these different different groups, whether it's faculty, staff, or uh, the community. And, you know, having not only soliciting, but almost to a point being required to get their input uh, before a major decision is made. And so coming from a, a hierarchical, you know, autocracy, if you will, you know, in the for-profit world where the leader of the company was the president or whoever's leading that division says, you know, this is the way I want to do it. And then things are executed from that perspective. Obviously, it's not that way in higher education. And so that was probably one of the bigger surprises. And then looking at the the institution itself, you know, I'd say, and that's actually part of my job is to kind of walk through or break down some of those silos from a communication standpoint. Sure, we get input in on major projects that are taking place or you know, major hiring, if you will. But there's also other big projects that take place that other people, other departments don't know about or don't realize. And so we getting that input is valuable in order to make sure that we're not duplicating processes or either duplicating processes or, or, or making sure that we, you know, we're doing it in the best interest of the entire university and not just one, you know, one particular act. So, you know, that's what part of my job is, is to bring all those different groups together, um, but then also still execute on the vision of whatever the initiative may be. Okay, let me just pause here for a second. I want to talk about that idea. You mentioned duplication of processes. Have you yes. found that you've encountered that? Like, oh, we have this. Sure. Tell me about that and tell me, are you able to clean that up? You know, there's, so yes, yes, definitely duplicative processes uh, across the university. And just, I think about it from a, you know, one small example was like IT, you know, there's different groups that have, you know, they're in control of their web pages, but there's not one like central oversight, if you will. And so you have teams, groups of teams. And there's reasons, there's some reasons for this, of course, because the messaging that takes place in one department doesn't necessarily reflect the same messaging that would take place in a different department. So I can understand why, or if there's a new idea of somebody that wants to do a new project, you know, something that's from a recruitment effort, you know, they have to have their own, has to have their own kind of branding because it's going to be a different audience than what would be, you know, for our other sides of the community. So I understand the reasoning why some of these are specialized, but from a backbone perspective and from a service perspective, you know, a lot of these things could be centralized so that we're not having to recreate the wheel in terms of information that's needed in either either to create the website and or to put, get the information out there to people. So there is some centralization I see that has taken place, but there could be a lot more. You know, another side could be from the finance side. You know, everyone has their own different budgets that are that are out there. But, you know, there's ways to 
from a communication and from a budgeting standpoint, you know, kind of centralize that into one particular office that feeds all of these other different departments. And that way you're not being redundant in terms of, you know, from a bookkeeping perspective, and then it's more clarity because you have one central point where everybody understands, like, this is a place I need to go in order to get either approvals or let's talk about a budget increase or whatever it may be. So when you're talking about the centralization of services and processes, like I'm thinking about like a hub almost, right? We yeah. You create some sort of infrastructure where everything comes out of that. So there's consistency in messaging so that it reduces confusion for employees as well as students and other stakeholders. And then you have maybe even reduced human capital time as well as maybe you don't have layers of technology upon layers. We don't need to buy new software programs or platforms and people to manage them. So do you see that as one of the challenges in higher ed is, you know, as so many different complex universities grew and they expanded and they were trying all these new things. And now it's just like the wild, wild west of systems and processes. (laughs) Is that what you're seeing? Or do you think I'm, I'm overstating that? Is it more of there's just some tweaks we would make some adjustments? I think there's a couple of things. One, yes, there's it becomes sort of the wild, wild west if, it, if it's not kept in check. Having a centralized, there's pros and cons to have a centralized place where, you know, whether it's business processes are taking place, you may not fit the need. The need might not be met because you want to have a standardization across the board. But if you have that standardization, then it doesn't necessarily allow for the creativity of a new if a particular department needs something that's completely different, you know, if it's centralized, that it can create more bureaucracy, you know, because they don't have the flexibility to go out and do exactly what they need to do in order to, you know, whether it's a student or, again, from a research standpoint. So so there's a trade-off. Is that what I'm hearing? Or can you just account for that? Can you go into a centralization mode with the understanding that we need to make sure we aren't creating other problems? by solving one problem? Well, there is that communication that needs to that needs to take place to make sure that you're not creating new problems for other people if you don't, you know, if you do create something new. I think there is trade-off. You know, if you think about it from a corporation standpoint, you're usually there. I'll take it from a, uh, a specific division. Everybody can be on the same platform because you're all marching to do the same thing. I'll take Harley, for example, we were there to make motorcycles. So having a different system didn't make any sense unless it was uh, enterprise wide that helped all the departments because we were all working to do one thing, which was make a motorcycle. Right. In a university setting, it's not quite the same because you have obviously different, you have different departments, you have different majors, you have different, you know, engineering is going to need something completely different than what the conservatory needs, you know, so. There is a baseline that takes uh, that, that I think that is necessary, but making that leap to specialize, it takes, it takes quite a bit of oversight from what I'm seeing. And when I've talked to different departments here, there's things that, you know, certain departments, this is where the communication comes in. And there's certain things that are happening in one department, like one professional school, they have, you know, how they keep track of some of their, um, employees, not employee benefits, but workforce development. And another group wanted to do something similar, but what they were doing over in that professional school wasn't communicated across the board. 
And so when it came up in another department that wanted to do the same thing and was exploring, and it happened to be the same program, it was kind of an aha moment of, oh, wait, we're already doing this. If you would have just asked us, we could have, we, we could have already, you know, walk through this and walk through it in a way that we we understand how it works and can provide help provide that solution for you so i think it's from the communication standpoint it's important to have some of that centralized centralization so in that case they wouldn't be duplicating and they could share some of the what i would call the uh, not synergies but hey avoid doing this and definitely you should take advantage of this piece because it helped us in XYZ way. So Andre, all I can feel right now is validated in my life choice to be a communicator because even though you're an engineer and you're talking about processes and systems, it seems to come back to communication. Communication. <laughs> okay, let's take a step back. And we talked a bit about centralizing of certain processes. What else do you see that could be tightened up? Like what would you improve in operations or systems if you had a magic wand? One of the big things I'd say is understanding your organization uh, from a people standpoint. So what we're experiencing now in higher education as, as a result of the pandemic and actually even prior to the pandemic is how do we manage our resources better? There's a push um, as an outcome from the pandemic of working from home, right? And this is, we're seeing this across the board, you know, uh, I think every institution is facing within higher ed as well as outside of higher ed. And so maintaining that what I'll call a customer service experience for your students, and but still meeting the needs of your employees and the work, quote unquote, work-life balance is a juggling act that I think all universities are struggling with at this point in time. So understanding what those space are, and this, is, this goes into, I think, a much larger question of who you are as a university, right? There's most universities have very large buildings. They have names on these buildings <laughs> in the classrooms. They want people to recognize the legacy that is there as an institution. And then also to give that on-campus experience. And so having a workforce be able to meet that need, but then also reduce some of the inefficiencies with having someone being on campus. One of the, I'd say it's a, it's a big thing from a sustainability standpoint, but one of the considerations, of course, is, you know, office space and also parking space, you know, where my institution is in the city. And so we have parking structures and parking, you know, lots and we have to pay for all of those things. And so if you have a workforce that's now working from home, you don't need as many parking spaces, right? You don't need the structures. You don't need as many offices, which obviously goes into you know, building and lighting and, you know, energy consumption. And so making that decision on what functions can be done remotely, what functions can be done or need to be done in person to make sure that you're still delivering that top notch experience for your students is, is a hard balance. And I think because higher education is slower and responding or changing, to adapt to those needs. And I think one that's a statement that I think they are slower to responding to those needs. And then 
one of the things that I think helps from the business world or from a process standpoint is, you know, one of the first things we ask is, you know, what's the outcome that you're looking for? And so if we look at, if we ask that question for our students and what their needs are, you know, the students that we're serving are, you know, technologically more adept than we are. They're used to being on screens. They're used to staying in their basement and playing games. You know, they did that all in high school. You know, how many students now are not driving because they can meet virtually with their friends? And so when they get to the on-campus experience, we want to, it's a growth period, of course. You're moving from being in high school or in school from home to now you have this campus and you have to interact with new people. And so how do we, but then there's also the other services that are associated with that, you know, whether it's, you know, signing up for your classes or doing financial aid or buying your books or even teaching classes that the schools were forced to adapt to, you know, during the pandemic. And then now are reckoning with how do we either continue this or how does it adopt or change to continue to meet what the students are expecting? You know, are the students, you know, we hear a lot of, we talk, we talk a lot about parents wanting their students, when their kids on, on campus because they want to feel like they're getting a value by their kids being there. Like, why am I paying $60,000, $85,000 and my kids at home, you know, on the computer, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And so there is a value that's associated with being in person on the university, which there's no denying that, but there's also what do the students want and what do they need? And if they, if they say, and I'll, I'll give a small example, let's say from a, um, well, not counseling, uh, when they're meeting with their advisor and instead of coming in, you know, cause a lot of students are shy and they don't want to come in and meet their advisor. They're much more readily to go online into a chat room or set up a virtual meeting. Well, if that's what the students want, then why do we need to have somebody sitting in an office here when they can do that virtual meeting from their home? Yeah, I think you're bringing up kind of a key issue in all workplaces right now, right? Right. Like, why are we forcing our employees to come into, you know, campus or the building if the customers are just as well serviced from home? And yet, I think we all know there is something lost with virtual. I know it. I feel it. I've been teaching online for years, well before the pandemic, and it's just Mm -hmm. not the same level of satisfaction. There's no impromptu conversations. There's no relationship building, or at least it doesn't happen at the same level and at the same depth as when you see people in person. And so, yeah, I feel the loss too, but I actually want to go back. You said something that really intrigued me and connected with something that you and I have spoken about before which is the pace of academics. (laughs) (laughs) And I know I felt it and I'll share with the listeners, you know, my first career was not education. It was in the media. I produced live television news. And so my deadlines were down to the second, not just the minute, but the second. And so then coming into academia, I went straight from media to academia. And I remember the first year that I worked in academia when my boss would say something along the lines of, yeah, we should really get on that. And, you know, like we should really do something about that. 
And I would stay until I had some sort of deliverable to show my boss. And then the next day, my boss would be like, wait, what? We haven't formed an ad hoc committee yet. We haven't had any meetings. We haven't done enough. This hasn't been thoroughly deliberated. And I was so surprised and taken aback by that, Andre. And I've just, I've relaxed a bit. I think I still give people whiplash at work sometimes, but I have relaxed a bit and I've appreciated the input and the collaboration and shared governance. But tell me from your perspective, an engineer's perspective, and you've done other things too, what does that pace do to the outcomes? Like, is it, do you see more benefits in having a slower pace and more deliberation, or would you like to see it speed up because of the missed opportunities or potential for missed opportunities? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, an opportunity, an opportunity cost for taking your time and, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, a project, but here's where we have to be careful, right? Because we build institutions to be around for a hundred years or more, you know, they're legacy institutions. And so quick making quick decisions from a process standpoint may be detrimental to what we're looking for in terms of that longevity of the university. So I, I tread lightly here when I say this, but there is an opportunity cost for making decisions at such a slower pace because one of the immediate things that we're experiencing, and I say we, I mean, not just the university, but I think everybody uh, in the workforce as a whole is the human capital, right? So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are, um, the job market is pretty tight right now. And so if we're looking for individuals to come and fill positions, you know, you have to make a quick decision because you may lose that person. You might lose them anyway because, you know, we're seeing a lot of people jump, hop from job to job. But the pace at which making those decisions can be sped up, it, it, it is frustrating because, you know, we could be losing people or we could be losing, you know, projects, uh, losing out on projects because, or opportunities in terms of, I think I look at it in terms of uh, maybe competition from other universities. Where, you know, if we would have, if we would have jumped on this a little bit sooner, you know, we could have capitalized, you know, and, but it's tough because again, the, the evolution of, you know, my thinking when it comes to making products versus giving an education to students is we work obviously on a much slower, at a much slower pace because you know, we're only generating on a semester basis, right? It's not like we're putting out widgets every day at this point in time and we need to, to adjust. The one thing that I will say from uh, what I think needs to, we need to think more rapidly on is the fact that, you know, I think everyone's talked about the enrollment cliff, right? And so being able to attract new students at a much faster pace and in ways that appeal to them obviously we can talk about the legacy of the university but if it's not appealing to that particular student then they're not going to come here so getting either programs or amenities that that they want you know at a much faster pace than our our competition of other universities then that would we can really lose out if we don't do that i'll put it I'll, i'll say it that way but it is frustrating in, 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 in terms of, again, you think about the hierarchy of, 
of <laughs> of a company and being able to make a decision, a split decision, and pivot and roll with it is a lot faster in, in private industry. And when I think since I've been here and I see how decisions are made, there's definitely a lot of debating that takes place. There's a lot of uh, questions from people that don't know much about the subject itself. Um, but, you know, getting their input is important. But there's a question of whether or not it's it's valid, right? Is it is Do they have enough authority to really talk about this? And so there's definitely some changes that could be made to make the university pivot a lot faster than what it is. Agreed. I'm with you on that. I'm going to do a whole segment <laughs> down the road on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to shift a little bit. We talked a bit about like your analysis, what you might change, where you see some things to be tightened up. Let's talk about what you would keep. Like, what do you think universities are doing well? What would you not change? What would you keep? The generating new ideas. You know, you don't want that to go away because that's the basis of the university, right? You you want to have that debate and you want to be able to uh, make sure that you're continuing to, to prep uh, people, those individuals and those students uh, to innovate. And so one of, that's what I would keep, but then also translate that into the other aspects of the university, you know, not just our, don't, don't just do this with our university, you know, do this with our own staff as well and our faculty to, to challenge each other because we want to, you know, continue. And that's, that's the one thing that I see is an opportunity for, for, I think for any university is to look at, Look at it from a continuous improvement standpoint. It's not a taking what happens in the real world or an in industry and trying to adapt or change, you know, the university to what's going on in, in industry. You don't necessarily want to do that because there's not many, there's many universities that have been around for hundreds of years, but there's not many companies you can say the same for. So, but taking some of those things. And that continuous improvement aspect of it of, hey, we've worked on this, you know, and it's, this is the one thing that I'd say is a problem, you know, for many industries is this is the way we've always done it. And so having someone come in with a fresh set of eyes and say, hey, let's look at why you're doing it this way. You know, what's the, what's the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve? And let's look at why you're doing it this way. And let's see if there's a better way of doing it. What it requires is being able to pivot in terms of uh, your processes. So, yes, you can have all this input, but if, you're, if your process isn't, isn't situated in a way where people are expecting that type of change, then you're going to create it. There's going to be a lot of resistance in place. All right. Okay. I'm just going to interject. You mentioned continuous improvement. Yes. So that's most for-profit organizations now have teams of people dedicated to continuous improvement, but it's much less common in colleges, particularly the non-for-profit, maybe fewer resources, maybe not the most selective schools. Do you see value in colleges that maybe don't have a continuous improvement person on staff, but maybe they could hire a consultant or a lean expert? Do you see value in those type of maybe contract workers and helping a college that's looking to sort of, you know, examine everything and recommend yep. a better plan. Tell me about that. Definitely. I think, you you know, having someone come in with a first set of eyes and being able to ask uh, the tough questions 
that's why many people hire consultants is because the cult consultant doesn't have their job is to bring in that change or at least make you aware of the change that should be there or could be there. And so they're able to, for the, the proverb or the proverbial turn over the ugly rock and ask that tough question that no one else is willing to ask. Even in academic setting, they can point out things, hopefully in a tactful way, where there's no consequences to that particular person, but there are consequences to the institution. And so there is a benefit. And I think asking the question only helps because it allows you to pinpoint some of your pain points. And if you don't ever recognize what your pain points are, then you're never going to be able to change them. So, yes, I think if, if institutions don't have a department or a person that is there to, to institute that change, hiring and out somebody from the outside, I think many institutions do that when they bring in consultants to look at, you know, how should we do this plan, whether it's an IT change or whether it's, you know, definitely if they're building a new building, they do it from that aspect. But you know, that seems to be more of a, a hard, hard stop. It's a building or we're putting in, you know, Microsoft Office and we have to make this big change or whatnot. But I think it's overlooked potentially in, in higher ed because from a, an everyday practice standpoint, because I think there is that that inertia. Of, we've always done it this way. So and it takes a monumental change to change a process. But I don't think there's anybody that's in there that's asking, why does it take why does it take this much effort in order to, to change something? From a public institution standpoint, which is where I work, we have to contend with, you know, rules and regulations from the state and other other forms that maybe a private institution doesn't have to deal with. But that's not to say that we can't work towards making changes, at least incremental changes along the way that could benefit the university and make it been using the word pivot a lot, but yeah. it really wasn't it. That's what it is, being able to pivot, deselect, and move on. You know, the pandemic made that word pivot relevant again. Literally <laughs> no one used that word until the pandemic, and then we all <laughs> used it. Right. <laughs> okay, Andre, I've got one more final question for you. What's your best advice for college leaders to operate sort of a tight organization, an organization that's run in a way that maybe an engineer could be proud of? I think being able to deselect, being able to don't be afraid to sunset an initiative and move on to the next. I think if you're able to change your process fast enough, then it's a lot easier to start on a new idea that might be a better idea and then also sunset or stop doing the things that are ineffective. So letting go of ineffective things and then also maybe what I thought I heard you say was change your process before you try to start new things. Correct. Yes, you have a goal of wanting to do X, Y, Z, you know, you want to decrease costs or you want to increase your, your revenue or in this case, you know, increase your enrollment. Well, what's it going to take in order to do that? Understand what your process is and then start making those changes within the process. But set up your organization so that they expect that, but also make sure that it's not a whiplash, that you're not just having a clear goal out there and making sure that everybody understands what the goal is, but then stepping back and saying, okay, we're going to set up our processes in order to achieve that goal. We may do this right now for this initiative that, again, works towards that goal. If it doesn't work, understand that we're going to shift and we're going to be able, we're going to work on this one. But it's still 
you still have your eyes on the prize. So make sure your processes are adept at changing and then not being afraid to deselect if something comes up that you know is not working. That's fantastic. Thank you, Andre. Hey, if someone wants to find you, where can they find you? How could they contact you? you contact me. I'm on LinkedIn. Andre Logan. We'll have that Andre in the sh- yep, show notes. We'll put that in. And then if they want to contact me directly, they can email me at logan43 at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Andre. Appreciate it. Sarah, thank you. I appreciate it. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.